0: train, 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 train. And again, I harp on this, that it's just the muscle memory, that you do it so much that your muscles just take over and, and it's second nature to what you're doing. And that's in every aspect of what we did, whether it's medic training IV or anything on the range and anything that you did, anything the Rangers did, they
1: did it 110%. Welcome to War Docs. Military Medicine Podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active-duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Command Sergeant Major Rodolfo Rudy Del Valle to War Docs. Sergeant Major Del Valle completed the Ranger Indoctrination Program in 1988 and initially served as senior medic for the 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. He performed a combat jump into Panama during Operation Just Cause and later was part of Operation Uphold Democracy. He has served in numerous senior enlisted roles, including as first sergeant of the 67th Combat Support Hospital Forward as part of Task Force Medical Falcon in Kosovo. He also served as command sergeant major of the 16th Medlog Battalion in Korea, and then later was selected for the role of command sergeant major of the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. You can read his full bio at WarDocsPodcast.com. On this episode of WarDocs, we are pleased to have retired Army command sergeant major Rodolfo Rudy Valle. Rudy, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate this opportunity.
2: Sergeant Major Del Valle, tell us what led you to join the military.
0: I was trying to go to school, work, and pay bills and live on my own back in Idaho. And I ended up with a one six GPA. I'd actually gone to college uh, out in Mid-American Nazarene College. And I blew out my knee playing football, came back to Idaho, tried to do all that stuff, and had a one six GPA, and I just wasn't going anywhere. So I went down the recruiters. I was in the reserves at the time and took some tests and signed up. And the guy told me, hey, medic could be a good choice. Unassigned airborne, unassigned rangers, would you want to do that? Didn't know anything about it. Watched a few things on TV and said, yeah, sure. And so that's what led me off. In September of 1988, I, I went to airborne school.
1: So what exactly is the expectation of a medic on the battlefield? A medic on the battlefield, being in the position that I was
0: in, ranger medics is kind of the tip of the spear when you're looking at things for special operations. And then you go on to do more SF and other things along the way. Being a ranger medic, you get to do everything that the 11 Bravos do, and then some, because you're the medic. You're the PA. You're the doc in that platoon. You're the doc in that company. You're taking care of those folks, whether it's a gunshot wound, anything, You're the one that they turn to and you're getting trained and you get trained to take care of that individual or individuals in the CTP or wherever your location is. So there's a lot of people dependent on you to take care of that individual.
1: So when you were in the first ranger battalion, you had a battalion surgeon. What are the medics looking for in that person that serves in that battalion surgeon or command surgeon spot?
0: To listen to you. (laughs) And I'm kidding a little bit. Um, I know you've interviewed some other folks and there's there's a whole litany of just true professionals that have been the battalion surgeon and then even the PAs and ranger medics that have gone on to be PAs and doctors as well. I tell you, these guys are incredibly smart, intelligent. We like them to be physically fit. And uh, I really related when you had Zarnik's interview, you have to show yourself, you have to prove yourself to the other rangers that are there because these guys, they're fast, they're strong. They can ruck all night and all day and they can take care of you. And so proving yourself to the ranger medics is a big deal, but physically and medical wise, your knowledge of medicine and what you can do to take care of the ranger medics and not only the ranger medics, but their families as well. There was a lot of babies being delivered and that's a big part of the ranger community.
2: Well, let's dive into that a little bit. You completed your training as a medic and then you joined the first ranger battalion as a weapons platoon medic and then performed a combat jump into Panama in support of Operation Just Cause, mid-December of 1989. Tell us about that job and your time in the Ranger Battalion and any interesting experiences.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of them. And a lot of those friends of mine are their brothers for life. And starting out in weapons platoon, you have different companies, weapons platoon, you know, you have the heavy Carl Gustav, the 90 millimeter recoilless rifle, and then the 60 millimeter mortars. So I was carrying base plates. I, I was shooting the mortars. I, I was, you know, shooting the Carl Gustav or training the 11 Bravos, how to start IVs, how to do the ABCs, take care of folks. Because if I got hurt, those 11 Bravos had to fight onto the Ranger mission and complete the mission and take care of that if anybody got hurt. And when we jumped into Panama, it was freezing in Savannah. It was raining. It was windy. I think it was in the 20s or something. And when we loaded up, I mean, it was almost a free-for-all for the things that we wanted. I had 10 IVs in my rucksack, um, I think six or seven mortar rounds. Yeah, I was carrying, back then, the M4. It was a car with a 203 underneath it and a 9 mil and rounds to go with that. So everybody's loaded up. I mean, you're, you got to do what you got to do. Morphine. The medics all had morphine as well, but it was really cold in Savannah that night. And then loaded the aircraft. And then I had a door position in the fourth bird out of a C-141. It came over the radio, said some things. Hey, they know you're coming, you know. But the the battlefield was prepped with things that we had and other forces that they they took care of things. And then the doors opened. You could feel the heat coming in from Panama and uh, you're all cameled up and your rucksack weighs like a truck. And then the green light came came on and you're out the door and 500 foot jump. I landed in the runway lights on a runway, the big tall orange ones are, I don't know how tall they are, but they get smaller and smaller as you come into the runway. I actually landed in one of those and had to pop my canopy releases because I still, I still couldn't touch the ground and then fell into the elephant grass. Screwed up my elbow, but it is what it is. And then, you know, you put your weapon into action and you're ready to go. Linked up with other Rangers. You train so much how you're flying, the angle of the flight. So if you get turned around or you have to bicycle out of a canopy all tied up, you know where things are going to happen or where you're going to land to go from there. Challenge and passwords so you're not shooting anybody or you're not getting shot. Things were flying around while you're walking onto the objective and going through the objective, taking care of you. It was intense, and you train like that as well. So when you are on the Friday night light, so to speak, it's just second nature, and the muscle memory comes into play, and you know you go from there.
1: Besides your elbow, were there any other injuries that you had to immediately take care of from that jump? When I jumped in, yeah, I'm trying to remember.
0: Obviously not, but there was a guy in my platoon— that had some shrapnel from an rpg the next day in his chin and that day we took care of him it was already getting infected almost a day and a half later at the very most and we ended up metabacking him out of there of course there was a couple of guys that uh at one in particular one of the medics our charlie company had gotten killed that night as well and then actually our battalion surgeon uh i believe he either threw a grenade or a grenade was thrown at him and he took some shrapnel too uh he was hung up in a tree on the airfield and could get down and was fighting off some of the PDF that way. I was in weapons platoon at the time and we hit our rally point and everybody got together and that one individual was the one that we took care of and medevaced him out of there.
1: Let's fast forward a little bit to 1990 and you were part of the desert storm invasion of Iraq, the first Gulf war. Can you tell us about your role there and any memorable experiences that you want to share?
0: We had a medic in each platoon, then we had a senior medic at the time. I believe I was in HHC and even probably third platoon as well. But we all worked together, 11 bravos would go to the range or, or a makeshift range that we had there. And I will tell you, when the place that we were at, I don't know how many sandbags we filled, but it felt like a million. Because for like the first four or five days, that's all we did was fill sandbags to fortify our position where we were at making weights out of sandbags and other stuff and bars. I mean, I'm I'm sure you guys are familiar with that too, it's just to stay in shape, jogging or, or running with, with our weapons around the area we were at, but just preparing and staying ready for any mission that came up or anything that happened to be prepared for that. And the medics would train IV therapy on people, doing IVs, not tourniquets at that time, as they're well done now just the ABCs, and then more definitive care if needed, and talked about certain things, what we would do, what you need to do, who to contact, radio communications, everything, everything that goes on within the area of operation that you're located in. So in
2: 1994, you were part of Operation Uphold Democracy in Haiti, which occurred because in 1991, there was a Haitian coup d'etat that installed a military regime governing Haiti. Tell us about your role in support of that military operation and any notable memories.
0: Yeah, there was a bunch of us that were together and we were on an aircraft carrier for a couple months. And the plan was to have a helo operation from our location into Haiti. And simultaneously the 82nd airborne was in flight and was going to do a combat jump with some Rangers from our battalion and other battalions. And I'm sure other folks too on that aircraft and simultaneously hit the objectives. We were all camoed up, ammo loaded up everything. The blades were turning on the aircraft on top of the aircraft carrier and just getting ready to board it. And then people came to us and said, hey, stand down, stand down. Uh, Jimmy Card at the time had talked to folks and said, hey, it's been canceled. There's a peace offering or whatever. So we ended up not going into Haiti, but we trained on the aircraft. We shot a lot of ammo off the back of that aircraft out in the water. Was able to do some dive operations or swim operations out there and just training too, just going over certain scenarios that we were going to see or the potential to see and walking, talking through those things with all the medics, the PA, the battalion surgeon, and all the company medics to make sure
1: everybody was online. Now, you're the first non-commissioned officer medic that we've had on the show, and I know that we have medics that do listen to the show, and you've had just a load of experience, especially operational with the Ranger Battalion and later on. What advice would you give to the younger medics as they're preparing to deploy and they haven't been there before?
0: Learn as much as you can from the leaders over you, the other medical folks, even The ones that have deployed, there's a lot that a PFC will know being in a gunfight or a a ranger medic, being in a casualty collection point, starting IVs in a helicopter uh, in the back of a uh, five ton or a truck or whatever, the vehicles we have now, doing IVs at night with night vision goggles. We did that religiously. And I know today closing my eyes and I could give an IV 100% because we did it so much. And again, it's that muscle memory that just takes over. So just learning from the people that are over you and asking the questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. I got smoked. If you did something stupid or said something stupid, you know, the senior rangers or guys that outranked you, hey, get down, doc, or hey, do this, or go elevate your feet. And it's just a way of learning. You know, you want to learn. So number one, so you don't get smoked. And two, that you learn that so you you know what right looks like and you don't make mistakes. And more importantly, you save lives on the battlefield.
2: So when you were at the Rangers and then had the combat jump and then fast forward to Haiti, where you were training off the back of an aircraft carrier, tell us how important it was for you to have rehearsals and do training drills in order to make sure that you are ready to accomplish those missions?
0: It's a vital piece to, to the mission. If you don't train uh, and have rehearsals, then you may fail and you probably will when it comes to the real world scenario, when it comes to the mission. So train, 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 train. And again, I harp on this, that it's just the muscle memory that you do it so much that your muscles just take over and, and it's second nature to what you're doing. And that's in every aspect of what we did, whether it's medic training IV or anything on the range and anything that you did, anything the Rangers did, they did it 110%.
2: Following short time at Fort Lewis, Washington, you then served as first sergeant for the 67th Combat Support Hospital Forward Task Force Medical Falcon in Kosovo. Tell us about that experience and interesting stories from that time.
0: Well, coming from the range battalion and then going to the other side, of the military was a great experience going to the 67th cache in germany craig layton was my sergeant major at the time and another great mentor that i still have to this day being in a range battalion you don't have the tents and everything everything you you know your are are sleeping your tv your refrigerator everything's on your back so uh my first field exercise getting ready to deploy you all know what the lsa is a living support area where you have to set up all those tents and everything, and stake things off, and well, I had, I had no idea what I was doing. One of my young staff sergeants, Lynette Aganbrod, told me, "Hey, first sergeant, I'll, I'll help you out." And instead of embarrassing me in front of everybody, just kind of took me aside, and said, "Hey, have you ever done this before?" I said, "Hell, no. I don't know what I'm doing here. Just, just educate me on this, and, and we'll go from there." So she ended up taking care of it, and you know, put her in forward, obviously. But we set up the LSA and got everything going. And we deployed to Kosovo, and I believe a total of nine months, maybe, you know, first in and one of the last guys to leave to set everything up. But we had a great group of people that worked hard there. I had a great company commander, a great commander who later became a two-star general for the AMED, Jeffrey Clark, just extremely intelligent and a very caring individual. Took care of us. We worked really hard out there. We set up the first EFMB that they had out there and got a lot of folks at EFMB, did a lot of training. Um, Some real world things came into our hospital. You know, kids getting shot and kids getting blown up by finding unexposed ordinance, you know, that happens. And, uh, the doctors, the nurses, the foreign people that we had working with us, British folks, we just had some class act people that help us take care of, uh, both the, the military and the civilian personnel while we were there at Kosovo.
2: As command Sergeant major, you served in Korea and as command Sergeant major of Walter Reed healthcare system and the Walter Reed national military medical center. What is the role of a command sergeant major at a medical center? Tell us about your experience in the National Capital Region as the command sergeant major.
0: How much time do we have? <laughs> if you're a good sergeant major, and I'm not telling you I'm a good one, I was very blessed to have great mentors. Dave Eddy, we succeed as a team and we fail as a team. And I, I will tell you, Walter Reed was busy. Tanya and I were stationed in, in Korea at the time and the Building 18 fiasco came about. Everything in D.C. is political, and I mean everything. I don't care if you're in the military, you're going to school, you're, it doesn't matter. Everything is politicized, and especially at Walter Reed, and I'll give you a few examples. The Building 18 incident occurred, and I got an email from Sergeant Major Layton, and he sent it out to a bunch of sergeants major folks that he knew and uh, said, hey, who wants to go to Walter Reed and, and be the CSM there? Well, nobody touched it. Nobody wanted to go there. I asked my wife, and before I could even finish, she was like, "Yeah, let's go." So, uh, so I sent Craig an email back, said, "Yeah, I'll I'll take the assignment." I think within the week, I don't remember what day it was, but within the week, uh, I was on orders to go to Walter Reed, and uh, you had to I had to be there within thirty days. That's how hot it was. We got to Walter Reed. guys been to Korea and going back to the States, we had two cats. I think we had six bags of luggage, showed up in the middle of the night. We got into the hotel. I think we got to sleep like two in the morning. And then the next day went into Walter Reed and, and civilian clothes. Just try to, you know, get the pulse of the organization. All of the leadership took over and turned that place around. And I was involved in everything, Wayne. I was involved, everything that I could get my hands on to make it better and try to make it better, but more importantly, to give the NCOs, the leadership, the tools they needed to make Walter Reed successful. And I started out the brigade, the Medical Center Brigade, so we were the first ones to stand up the wounded warrior battalions. We had to move all the permanent party folks out of the barracks that were on Walter Reed proper and move them into apartment building around the DC area. So we had, I don't know how many apartments it was, it was a lot of them, a fully furnished, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, that if best Del Valle was staying in, that the army or the government was paying two grand a month to stay in fully furnished. We had a bus service that would go pick up folks because they didn't have a car, bring them into Walter Reed. to read. Then it was the GWAT money, so there was a checkbook with an endless bank account. But it really did a lot of great things, not only for the permanent party folk, but the wounded warriors. And it just opened up a lot of avenues that we probably wouldn't have had, had we not been during time of war. So the Fisher House, the Malone House, I believe, you know, Walter Reed, Bethesda has, uh, I think, two or three Fisher Houses on it now. I think we had one at Walter Reed, uh, the old Walter Reed. We had, they had built it or was kind of a makeshift one, but we had the Malone House. And then you had these great barracks that had like, I think, a 40-inch uh, flat screen TV in, a com- an Apple computer in. All the wounded warriors had all this at their disposal to help them out. But for the first time since Vietnam, you know, you were seeing folks coming in there that were with amputees, an arm and a leg or both legs. Brendan Morocco was the first quad amputee plus one of his eyes. He got hurt through an EFP in Iraq, and nobody had ever seen that before. Real quick, I'll tell you, he came in, imagine a body with no legs and no arms, and that's pretty small. But I'll never forget his uh, father, Alex, putting his finger in my chest, and uh, we're up on the ICU. said, you better take care of my son. And uh, I'll never forget that. And rolled out the red carpet for him, him and his family. And uh, Brendan's brother was taking care of him as well, became his care provider. Brendan was the first one we had, and it opened the eyes to everybody there. But I made sure when I talked to the ICU there, I said, I don't care if it's two in the morning, two in the afternoon. I don't care what you're doing anything happens to him you better give me a call and I'll get you whatever you need whatever you want whatever it is to take care of this individual and we took care of him go back to 2012 my retirement Alex came to my retirement and that meant the world to me because it let me know that hey we did the right thing took care of Brendan and everything was successful but it took a lot of doctors a lot of nurses a lot of medics a lot of cleaning people. I mean, just a whole litany of Walter Reed, team effort. I just stress that, team effort. Walter Reed was magical on that to take care of that individual. And that's just one story of so many that came through there. Chris Corbin, a Ranger SF guy, his dad was an SF guy. They were both stationed in Afghanistan at the time when Chris got hurt. Lost both his legs, Chris, I don't know if he'll listen to this, but he ended up punching one of the doctors, one of the doctors at Walter Reed, because the doc refused to take care of him, not refused, but just was giving him a hard time. That was a great news story. But because of that Ranger brotherhood, I went up there and was able to diffuse a lot of stuff. And Chris and I are good friends to this day and saw him last summer. He was here in San Antonio and had a couple of beers with him and we still keep in touch. And his dad is a big guy is a real big guy and it was tough to to keep him calm but i mean that's his son you want the best care for your family
1: so walter reed was the epicenter of patients coming back from oif oef to conus and you must have seen just a bunch of incredible things and you've described some of that what are some of the leadership lessons that you learned while you were there during those incredible times
0: well that you got to do the best for everybody And you can't pick and choose who you are, who they are. It doesn't matter. You're there to provide health care for wounded warriors, for their families, for reporters, and then the everyday life that goes on at Walter Reed with people's appointments. It's just, we did so many things to make Walter Reed better and successful. When you're sick and you're coming through the beltway and trying to get there, and then you get to Walter Reed and you're trying to find a parking spot and you can't, and then you finally find a, find a parking spot and you're late for your appointment, you come in and you're just you're really frustrated. So we incorporated a customer service program when somebody comes in, meets you at the door. Hey, Mr. Delvi, how can I help you? Well, I'm trying to find uh, X-ray. Hey, let me take you there. And if you need a wheelchair, they put you in a wheelchair and they take you to the X-ray department. Wait there till you're done. And then they take you back out and take you up to your car or whatever. But a simple, hello, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you today? Can I help you find something? That played huge dividends for Walter Reed and started to turn our customer service or the black eye we got from building 18 and anything else that was negative in the DC area, in the army or the medical field that we could get blamed for. We started to turn it around. And I believe, I think it was two years After there, maybe it could have been a year, but we won the customer service award and got like 500K from department of the army to help things have been better. Walter Reed, I believe it was 25 million a month to run that place. So from the lights being turned on to the high paid, vascular surgeons we had to the doctors and everything else. I mean, it, it was a lot of money to run that place, but it was well worth it because it was just, it was the pinnacle of medicine, everything. Navy folks were there, air force folks were there. Coast Guard folks were there. We took care of all the four-star or the, you know, the MCPON, the the Navy Master Chief, the Sergeant Major of the Army, and then his boss, Ward 72. I mean, we took care of all those folks. Bob Dole, the gentleman that just passed, we saw him all the time in there. And what an incredible individual. And that's just one of so many. Princes from Saudi Arabia all over would come in either to visit, and if something would happen. Man, Ward 72 and Walter Reed proper was just incredible, incredible care, taking care of people. Again, it's just magical. We recruited a guy from Disney from Florida, I'll uh, just say his name was Fred, and worked in Disney, I think for 20 something years, but came up to Walter Reed to help us establish a customer service program to make it that much better for all the people that would come in and, and be seen at Walter Reed. I mean, it was just amazing. Just amazing.
1: Yeah, I think he wrote a book that was called If Disney Ran Your Hospital. So that's interesting to hear that he came to Walter Reed. So if the medical care wasn't complex enough. You had celebrities and people from Congress. Everybody wanted to come and visit Walter Reed during that time. Any stories stick out about somebody coming in and crazy things that happened?
0: Jack Nicholson, the actor, came to visit one time. And he looked at me and said, Sergeant Major... Tell me how the warriors, the wounded warriors get here from the battlefield. What how long does it take? What's the process? And I, you know, thought he was joking. I thought he was, I didn't know if he's being serious or not. I said, Hey, sir, are you serious? Of course, he says, Yeah, I'm blanking serious. And tell me the story. And that was amazing to me because here's a guy who I grew up watching TV, watching him on TV and so on and so on, and was genuine, was genuinely concerned and wanted to know how that process took place. Oprah Winfrey came to see, us. I mean, a whole bunch of people came to see us and spent a lot of time there. Stevie Nicks would come and spend a whole day there, would put music on our iPads or whatever, the, the little tiny ones when they came out and put her music on there and music and hand those out to people. Trace Atkins was another big country Western guy that would come in. Angelina Jolie. There's so many. We had over 500, over 500 outside agencies that wanted to take care of wounded warriors and their families. Again, we did a horrible job from our Vietnam, and that's a shame. And every chance I get when I see a Vietnam veteran, I just saw one yesterday, a Marine, who still had the grip of a grizzly bear, said, I'm sorry, you know, we, we should have done a better job taking care of you. But we fixed that with these wounded warriors, all the prosthetics, the missing limbs that we saw, everything to take care of them, just class act, A++ plus service from the medic to the receptionist to the doctor to the nurses to the recovery room to everything taking care of those wounded warriors. And not only them, but their families in the Malone House, the Fisher House, apartments, downtown, everything to make sure that they were taken care of. So their loved one, their soldier or sailor, airman, marine were taken care of at Walter Reed. I will tell you, the Ranger Battalion was my best assignment, at Walter Reed, and I'm probably going to hurt some people, it was pretty close there to the Ranger Regiment because it was just one of the hardest jobs I've ever had, but one of the most gratifying, and even to this day, still in touch with a lot of those wounded warriors and just amazing people.
1: So a lot of times the medics are assigned not only to operational units, but they're also assigned to the military treatment facilities. And their mission is to prepare for deployment. In your opinion, what is the best way that we can prepare our medics for what they're gonna expect downrange?
0: I've heard soldiers say, hey, I'm not a hospital medic, I'm a field medic. No, you're a medic in, in both avenues. You have to be well diverse in everything. So there are some great medics in the hospital arena. There's some that said, hey, hey, Sar Major, I, I want to go to airborne school or I want to do this. Well, if you want to go to airborne school, you're not coming back to Walter Reed. You're going to 82nd or somewhere else so you can really do the work that you're training for. I would say, you know, I was blessed to start out where I started out and, like I said, still reaping the benefits even now and it, especially my military career. There's a lot of folks that fell through the cracks, you know, soldiers that that were mine at Walter Reed and never been in the field unit or were in a field unit and then came to the hospital and nobody really took care of them. They kind of fell to the side and that's a shame, a bad leadership. But it's just, you have to be well diverse in a field unit and the hospital. You need them both. And if I had one thing to say, I, I really don't even want to say it because I you know, people say, oh, go to a field unit first. No, you can do the same thing in a hospital. You just have to be motivated and want to do the best you can everywhere you go to be a better individual, to be a better medic and go up through the ranks. And and if you want to be a doctor or a PA, you can do that too. But there are so many opportunities of being a medic in the army, being in the army, there's so many opportunities that you can do. And you just have to take advantage of that. You have to be motivated and you have to pick the right mentors to help you be motivated and to be successful. And again, I just can't say enough about Doc Donovan, Greg Layton, Dave Eddy. There's so many folks out there that really took me under their wing and showed me the right path.
2: So you've mentioned a lot of great mentors that you have. And I'm sure you were a good mentor to a lot of others. What advice would you give to leaders who are preparing the next generation of military medical providers? What do medics need from licensed military healthcare providers, doctors, PAs, nurses, et cetera?
0: To be honest with them, be fair with them. Had a few things that I learned from Craig Layton, but be hard, be fair but have compassion. That's what you have to do. The tough love. You want to be successful, you got to surround yourself with successful people. You want your organization to be successful. As a leader, you got to be the hardest working one out there. Real quick example, picking up trash. If people saw the Sergeant Major do it, then other people would do it. How do you fix things and how do you make things better? Every little detail that you do, there's a reason behind it. You know, we talked about Adam McRaven and Make Your Bed. Yeah, that's a great piece. You start off that first task and you complete it. And then the rest of your day, you just keep on doing another one. You take care of your soldiers, your soldiers are going to take care of you. And I mean that as airmen, uh, Navy, everybody, your folks that work for you. You got to be honest with them. You can't BS them because they know that you're BSing. Even in front of formation, if I didn't know something, hey, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll get that to you. But I guarantee you, I knew how to take care of soldiers. And that showed because I was shown how to take care of soldiers correctly. And it just resonated throughout my career. So I give a lot of credit to the mentors that I had. And I just tried to give that back every day and and still try to give that
1: back. So if your future family listens to this podcast a hundred years from now, What would you want them to hear about your career as an Army medic? That it was one of the best decisions,
0: if not the best that I ever made. That I am the man I am today because of the military and because of the mentors that I had over me. Doing the best at everything you can so you can give that back in any fashion that you can to make people better than you are or you were to make them successful. Man, nothing makes me happier than getting an email from a former soldier or whomever, somebody that I worked with, and just say, Hey, Rudy, or Hey, SAR Major. Hey, I got my master's degree, or Hey, we're married. I got two kids. And or, hey, I just retired from the Army, or Hey, I, I just got promoted to Sergeant First Class. Or I mean, that's just that, what a great feeling that you have. And it's not Rudy did it, but we as a team did it. And you showed that individual what it takes to be successful. It's a great way of life. And I've said this many times if I die today, I've lived a great life. I want to live a few years more but the military was the best thing ever happened to me
1: we've been speaking with retired army command sergeant major rudy del valle rudy thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on war docs
0: thank you gentlemen appreciate it
1: thank you so much for tuning into this episode of war docs the military medicine podcast we sure hope you enjoyed it we invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media you can follow us on facebook twitter and instagram find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of team wardox on our website wardoxpodcast.com that's wardoxpodcast one OneWord.com. thanks so much for your support if you like war stories and medical drama, war Docs has you covered. Spread the word.